This is Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people waging struggle for love and revolution. So I think that we really have to rethink what does it mean to be human, what do humans need, and food and safety is not enough. And I think that we have to have a culture that gives people healthy ways to attain purpose, meaning, self-worth, and belonging. And I think a culture of nonviolence is a very powerful way to offer that to people. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, we talk with Paul K. Chappelle about the intersections of love, heart, spirit, strategy, and action, exploring his unique vantage point on conflict studies that comes from spending years in both the U.S. military and in the peace movement. Hello, this is Sherry Mitchell for Love and Revolution Radio. Golazi Gawopa, that's greetings to you in the Penobscot language. I'm coming to you from the banks of the beautiful Penobscot River here in Penobscot Territory in the state of Maine. I'm here today with my wonderful co-host, Rivera Sun, and our special guest, Paul Chappelle. Hello, Rivera. Hi, Sherry. It's great to talk with you and to hear about the beautiful Penobscot River, which warms my heart, having grown up in Maine. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation today. We're going to talk with Paul Chappelle, who is quite a peace activist with an unusual history for a peace activist. He graduated from West Point in 2002, got deployed, and left active duty in 2009 as a captain. He has since gone on to be one of the most prominent and active voices for peace across the U.S. He's the author of the Road to Peace series, which is a seven-book series that has just released the fifth um, installment, a book called The Cosmic Ocean, which we'll talk about today. He's also the Peace Leadership Director for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Paul, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Paul, you and I have had the opportunity to work together a few times now and have known each other for several years and always inspired by the work that you do. And I've been reading the copy of The Cosmic Ocean that you sent me. And one of the parts that I find really interesting is the chapter on the sanity of humanity. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the spiritual process of entering into nonviolent activism and really being having that become a part of your peace work on an individual basis and also on a larger basis for all of us here. Oh, yeah, I'd be glad to. Thank you, Sherry. It's really great to speak with you on this show and to talk to Rivera Sun finally. But yeah, the sanity of humanity is, is we have to understand the human condition and Humans have some very unique problems. We are the only species in the planet where we have food, freedom, safety, good health, and we'll commit suicide. And we're the only species that suffers from uh, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, um, you know, various self-destructive behaviors, anorexia. And part of it is humans 
we have this craving for purpose, meaning, self-worth, belonging. And if we don't find healthy ways to fulfill those cravings, it can be very, very mentally and emotionally painful for us. And if you look at the drive for self-worth, for belonging, for purpose and meaning, that is what drives most human behavior in terms of think about why people buy Lamborghinis. Lamborghini is not the most practical car in the world, but it makes you feel very worthy. And we live in a culture where your worth is defined in large part based off how much money you make. If you have a really fancy car, if you have a big house, if you make a lot of money, you're very worthy. If you don't make as much money, you're not considered as worthy. And so we have to kind of redefine our values in our culture. How do we find self-worth? How do we achieve belonging? Think about belonging, how people are driven to that in terms of nationalism. ISIS appeals to people's craving for self-worth, belonging, purpose, and meaning. And how do we find healthy ways to, to, to give these things to people? And how do we channel that into actions that will make our world more peaceful and more just for everyone? So in your new book, The Cosmic Ocean, you're looking at this question of the sanity of humanity and belongingness. What are some of the things that you hypothesize or propose as a way or a path towards that goal? Yeah, so studying the nonviolent movement and military history, what you find is that if you give people purpose and meaning, people will die. People will willingly die. Think about the civil rights movement. You tell people that they're struggling for a noble cause, they're struggling for justice, they're struggling for freedom, they're struggling for democracy. Civil rights movement, Gandhi's anti-colonial movement, the movement to abolish slavery, the women's rights movement, people will risk their lives, they'll voluntarily go to jail, they'll get beaten up because they believe this has a purpose and a meaning to it that's very important. Same thing with military history. If you give people a purpose and meaning, we're fighting for our family, we're fighting for our country, we're fighting for freedom, for democracy, we're trying to liberate people, we're fighting for a better world, people will willingly die. And so this is such a powerful human drive, and I think that nonviolent movements tap into that. We have to give people purpose and meaning and we have to show them that being involved in nonviolence, it's a worthy cause and it's necessary for the survival of humanity during this delicate era in human history. Paul, you talk a lot about how um, the military inspires soldiers to fight by speaking about protection of their loved ones. On Love and Revolution Radio, we focus on aspects of love, heart-based activism, how you bring that forward into the work that you're doing. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how do you use that type of impetus, this love for our family and those close to us to inspire us to do this work of nonviolent activism? Yeah, that's a great question. So it comes down to the central question of how do you motivate human behavior? So how do you motivate and inspire humans to act? And there's many different philosophies of how you do that. You can tell people, well, if you do this, I'll pay you this amount of money. Or if you do, don't do this, I will beat you. I, I, you can use fear tactics. You can use threat of punishment. If you don't do this, you'll go to hell or I'll slap you or hit you or I'll beat you. And those are all different techniques that have been used. But what history has shown is the most powerful motivator in human history is love. Love for our family, love for um, other living beings. The kinds of things people will do when they're driven by love it is incredible. People will willingly die, they'll go to jail, they'll get beaten up. And we can all relate to this. Just think about 
an attacker threatening your child or your loved one. You will rush to protect your loved one. I don't have to pay you any money. I don't have to threaten you. Just you will willingly, of your own free will, just have this surge of energy and motivation to protect your loved one. And the military knows that love is the most powerful force in the world. We hear that love is naive, but the military knows love is the most powerful force in the world. And that's why the military does this whole band of brothers thing. And the military is a family, and you're fighting for your brothers. You're fighting for your comrades. Our country's under attack. We have to protect our families from this evil threat. It's a very, very powerful human motivator. And when we're involved in activism, I think if you're driven by love, love for the planet, love for other creatures, love for humanity, even love for people who are misguided, it is the most powerful motivator. And it's the best motivator to keep you mentally healthy during this very long struggle, protecting you from being bitter, cynical, and and going down a very dark path. One of the interesting things about your work, Paul, is that on one breath you speak very uh, with a lot of experience about the military background, and on the other breath you speak with a lot of experience about nonviolent movements. And in a lot of your writings, you draw some very keen parallels between the two. Would you be willing to share a few of those uh, and with our listeners why perhaps those in the peace movement should uh, be aware of war and military history and why those in military conflict organizations should be aware of the strength of nonviolence as a conflict resolution tool? Yeah. So the military has millennia, many thousands of years of studying the human condition, you know, how to motivate people. And there is a commonality between the military and the peace movement is these are the only among the, the few occupations in the world where you have to have a reasonable expectation that your fellow human beings might attack you or try to kill you. So if you go work for Google, if you go work for IBM, if you go become a doctor, you don't have a reasonable expectation that your fellow human beings are going to try to attack and kill you. If that does happen, which it can, it's out of the ordinary but when you go into the military or you are part of the civil rights movement or the abolition movement or the women's rights movement, you have to expect that's going to happen. And so what the question comes down to is the military asks this question, how do you motivate people to be courageous? How do you get people to willingly risk their lives? And things like love, fighting for a noble cause, struggling for an idea – is a very powerful motivator. And so Gandhi noticed this when he was in the military as a medic, is how do we take the good things the military has realized and remove that from the bad things? So how do we take the whole idea of brotherhood and camaraderie but extend that to all of humanity? And where it's not me versus the enemy, which is this group of people, it's me versus the enemy, and the enemy is hatred, the enemy is ignorance, the enemy is misunderstanding, the enemy is greed, and how do I strategically attack the enemy that is hatred and ignorance? And if I attack hatred with hatred, I just inflame the hatred. If I attack hatred and ignorance with love, understanding, truth, that's how you get down to the root of the problem. One of the things that I have always loved, and it reminds me of what we're talking about right now, is this quote by Lao Tzu that says, being loved deeply by someone gives you strength while loving someone deeply gives you courage. And there's a story that I've shared with you before regarding my children when they were very, very small. I raised them primarily as a single parent, and when they were in the home, I felt very courageous because I had a role there as their protector. 
when I was in the home by myself, I often felt afraid. And I had to really think about that. Why is it that I feel more courageous and unafraid when my children are in the home? It's not like they're offering me any protection. And then I realized because I'm stepping into the role as their protector. And that gives me, my love for them gives me a deep sense of courage. And I also wanted to mention something else that you just said, which I think is really important, which is when we fight anger with anger, violence with violence, we just create more of the same. What we build grows and how we invest our energy and what we invest our energy in is what we're actually supporting. And I think that, um, you know, you can probably talk about that, about how there is a cycle of feeding the movement um, based on how we approach these incredible number of problems that we're facing as human beings on part of this one living ecosystem here on the planet, that there's an importance about the work that's not only strategic, but it's really about the type of world that we want to create. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good story and really good point is we have to lead by example. We have to model the behavior that we want the world to model. And if these activists can't model these ideals, compassion, empathy, understanding, how do we expect people outside the peace movement to model any of this? Because the people outside the peace movement, they don't claim to represent ideals such as empathy and compassion and understanding and tolerance. They, they don't claim those things, but we do claim to do that. And we have to live up to it. And I have a lot of empathy for peace activists. This work is very, very difficult. And it's so frustrating at times. And there's so many problems going on. And it can really make you angry when you see people being treated badly. I mean, it can really develop this fire in you, which can lead to bitterness if you're not careful. And I really appreciate their passion. And I understand how difficult the work is. So I appreciate all the peace activists out there no matter what point of view they're, they're, they're at. But if we want to maximize our efforts, there's so little we can control in this, in this struggle. We have not, not, we don't have a lot of money. We're up against powerful forces that have so much more control than we do. We have to maximize our effectiveness. And I draw a lot of inspiration from people who came before us. If you look at Frederick Douglass, I try to see the world as he saw it by reading his autobiography. And he was living during an era before civil rights movement, before ending apartheid in South Africa, before Gandhi. And when he started out in the anti-slavery movement, he was also a women's rights activist. Back then, women couldn't vote in the U.S., couldn't own property, couldn't go to college, they couldn't serve in a jury. And how did he not become bitter? Slavery was legal in almost every country. So how did he not become bitter? How did he maintain empathy and, and calm and compassion? And it's a big struggle. We have to help each other out because there's a lot of frustrating days doing this kind of work. We need people we can talk to, we can vent to, and share experiences with, and we got to be able to encourage each other to push this movement forward in the most effective way possible and to ultimately um, model as best we can the ideals we're professing. No. While we're on the subject of anger, you know, there are people who, like you said, there's many diverse opinions about anger and the role of anger within movements, whether there's 
righteous anger or whether anger is always harmful within a movement. What is your perspective? Because anger happens, right? When we're looking at injustice, when we're looking at suffering, it's a natural human response to seeing things that are causing pain and suffering in ourselves and those that we love. What do we do with that anger? Do we spill it onto the streets? Some people pick up violence, some people pick up nonviolence. What have you found in your experience uh, to be the best uh, application, the best use or the best way to utilize the force that is anger? The word anger, I try to divide it into different categories because the word can be very generic. And one term that I use a lot is this term moral fury. You could also call it moral outrage. And moral fury or moral outrage is this emotion that happens when you witness injustice. When you see somebody being mistreated, you have this kind of burning sensation in your conscience. And that is a important, essential emotion. And what we're doing in a movement is we're trying to evoke that emotion in people. We are trying to get people to feel that burning moral fury, moral outrage if witnessing injustice. And part of that is we have to raise awareness, but then we have to challenge that fire into something productive. So you can't have a movement, you can't have progress without moral fury, without that burning, con- that burning feeling in your conscience that injustice is happening and it's wrong. But on the other hand, anger can also mean rage. Rage is where you want to inflict pain on someone. And the difference between rage and anger is rage happens when you care more about inflicting pain on someone than you care about your own personal safety. And the rage can be a very dangerous emotion. But I think that we have to evoke that moral fury in people, but then we have to challenge it, uh, channel it. Because a lot of people, they don't want to witness injustice because it makes them feel helpless. They don't know what they can do. They'd rather not know about it. So how do we evoke that feeling in people? How do we channel it into constructive action? And how do we frame all of it within a hopeful message so that people, as they're learning more and more about injustice, they don't just become hopeless and say, oh, this is, I can't deal with this anymore. I just want to tune out because this is just too hard to deal with. So we have to provide kind of like a hopeful framework so that we can inform people more and more about the injustice that's going on without them uh, becoming bitter. I think it's also important when we're talking about these types of things and thinking about the role of empathy and compassion for others, we have to be able to allow room for movement. You talk about some of the issues of rage in some of your earlier books, the berserker type rage, where if you back somebody into the corner, they're going to fight to the death. That there needs to be some space to allow people room for movement. And the type of change, the type of movement that we're hoping to inspire here on Love and Revolution Radio is, you know, a real change in the heart and minds of people. But also Derek Bell, who is a preeminent civil rights scholar, talked about something called the interest convergence theory. And essentially what that is, is it's a point where we can work toward cooperation, where we can share the common goals that we have rather than looking at the differences. And if we hope to be able to reach the critical mass that's necessary to achieve a tipping point, we need to give people room for that movement to occur. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. A part of that with nonviolence is you're always looking for the win-win situation. You're always framing your work as the win-win. This is what is going, this is what is going to benefit everybody. So with, with the whole philosophy of nonviolence is not 
us versus them. It's not I win and you lose. It's looking for the win-win and finding how we can all win together by promoting justice. So it's a very much much different mentality in terms of you're trying to find where do our interests converge and how do we achieve the win-win. What Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass realized is racism is also bad for the slave the segregation. It, it corrupts their minds, it corrupts their, their humanity. And people might say, well, not everyone's going to win if we stop environmental destruction because some people won't make as much profit, but we need to have a planet to live on, right? So we need to have a planet that, that has a healthy ecosystem where people can survive and thrive. And in that way, all humans will benefit. And some people might not make as much money, but how can we make money at all if we don't have a planet and our species goes extinct? So if you frame these in terms of human survival, we do realize how this is what is going to be best for our species. And it's going to be what's best for the other species that also inhabit this planet with us. Do you think that justice is, as Martin Luther King said, the, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Do you think this concept that we have as, of justice is actually rooted in those types of win-win scenarios? I mean, do we ever have a situation in which there, actually the, there's only win-lose options? I think that it depends upon the person's mindset. When the women's rights movement was gaining traction in the 19th century, in the U.S. and in Europe, women wanted half of this stuff in society. They wanted jobs that they typically couldn't get. They wanted to go to all the colleges. They wanted to be lawyers and doctors and writers and public speakers. And they wanted to be able to vote and own property and sign contracts and serve on juries. And there were men who perceived that as a win-lose situation, that women will get more power at our expense. But if you look at it in the broad in the broad spectrum of human history, it really does benefit the entire society if more people are given justice. And it opens new doors for other people who are being mistreated. So I think that if somebody's frame of reference is just how much money can they make, it might seem like a win-lose. But if their frame of reference is broader, if they're thinking about human survival and justice and what's the healthiest society we can have, and the, the, the spreading of liberty and equality and fairness, this really does benefit everybody. And people in power will put people against each other. They'll say, well, if, if we let immigrants come to this country, you will lose your job or you won't be as well off financially. But they do that by neglecting other issues. If you look at the military budget, if you look at how much we spend on nuclear weapons and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, if you look at we're going to spend around a trillion dollars to modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal. So there is money in other places that could be used to benefit everybody. And when you take all of that into account, you see a much clearer picture of what's really going on. I think it's also important to note that this long history of pitting people against each other is part of the strategy of war. It's part of the propaganda that you have to villainize the other in order to inspire people to act out of fear or anger. And I think it's really important to look at 
these cycles that we're in, the perpetuation of these cycles, because they're cycles of conquest and the toppling of one system for another, regardless of how morally right you believe your position is, is an act of conquest. It's an act of domination. And so we need to really change the way that we engage this process, not as um, a process of toppling an existing system so that it can be replaced by another, because then we just continue to perpetuate these practices of conquest. But by working towards those win-win scenarios that you're talking about, we need to end these cycles of domination where we view one person's um, idea of being superior to another. And the only way for us to do that is to work toward those win-win scenarios that you were talking about. This helps us to end cycles of domination and to eliminate these practices of conquest and move more toward the practices of consensus, where everybody has the opportunity to live a life with some dignity. And one of the things that you talk about in the cosmic ocean is overcoming our inner demons, because those are some of the things that block us from being able to reach that place where we're willing to consider the needs of the other. Can you talk a little bit about your process and going through that and how you were able to make peace with what you had inside of you and to use that actually as a positive lesson that helped you to work toward greater practices and greater strategies for nonviolence in your own life? Yeah, that's great points. Yeah, so people in power, they control people by dividing and conquering. They want to bomb the empathy that we have for other people. And they want to bomb that empathy with propaganda and all this kind of divisive, these divisive tactics that those in power use. The people in power, they want the poor American white worker to see the immigrant as the enemy or teachers unions as the enemy, right? Or government workers as the enemy. They want to divide these people up. During the era of slavery, they wanted the poor white man to see the black slave as the enemy. And Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Douglass both wrote about the reason why there's so much poverty in the South is because of slavery. If you have a labor force that works for free, how much are you going to pay white workers to do any work? Not very much. And so we have to recognize our shared humanity. This takes many different forms. I meet a lot of people in the peace movement. They dehumanize people in the Tea Party. They dehumanize conservatives and Republicans. They dehumanize Trump supporters. Right. Rather than realizing that we do have this common ground, how do we reach people in these demographics? And these people aren't really the enemy. Ways of thinking are the enemy. And if we do not reach out to these people, then the people in power have a much easier time giving them very limited information. So in terms of my own struggle with that, it is, it, it's, it's a, a journey through life to say it broadly, but I try to use all the painful things that have happened to me and use that to build empathy for other people. By using the pain I've had in my life and using that to develop empathy for other people, then that pain serves a purpose and it has meaning. And so I try to use all the pain I've been through to increase my empathy, increase my understanding. And part of it too is rage is a very painful terrible feeling it's 
and there are times you feel that and it, it's okay. It comes back every once in a while. It's like scar tissue in your brain. But to be in that state of mind for a long period of time is very, very painful. And so when you do come into that place of rage, how do you have ways to get out of that? Because if you linger there too long, it can be very self-destructive. So empathy just feels better and it's more strategically effective. In the art of war, Sun Tzu said, know your enemy. You have to know your enemy in order to defeat your enemy. And the same is true when waging peace is concerned. You have to know your enemy. And the, the deepest way to know your enemy is through empathy. The deepest way to know another human being is through empathy and love and understanding. And when you know your enemy through empathy, you realize that, well, they're not really your enemy. Your enemy is ignorance. Your enemy is hatred. How do you try to free their minds from hatred and ignorance? And there's a woman named Eleanor Jean Hoffman. She said that an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. So if we're going to do this long term and really create deep changes to our society, we have to get down to the root causes of these problems. And I think a lot of what we do now is really more addressing the symptoms rather than the root causes. And the root causes are ways of thinking and attitude towards each other and towards life in general. So, Paul, here's a, you know, a, a little curveball to throw at you, which I'm sure someone has thrown at you several times in the past year and a half. Whenever we start talking about love and peace movements and transforming our inner natures and someone's invariably going to come up and say, well, that's all very well and good, but what about ISIS? What do you do about ISIS? So I'm sure you've given this little thought. What, what is your response when that question comes up for you? And we are going to leave you with that tantalizing cliffhanger while we take a quick break for a station ID and also your weekly dose of nonviolent history. Every week on Love and Revolution Radio, we like to share a little tidbit or factoid from the long, deep, broad and wide history of nonviolent movements that have shaped and changed our lives. January 18th marked Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So, this week on Know Your Nonviolent History, we're going to share the six principles of Kingian nonviolence. These fundamental tenets of Dr. King's philosophy of nonviolence are described in his first book, Stride Toward Freedom. The first principle of Kingian nonviolence is that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. Principle two is that nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. At the end of a nonviolent struggle, there should be redemption and reconciliation. Principle three holds that nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Principle four says nonviolence holds that suffering can educate and transform. Principle five says that nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. Nonviolence resists the violence of the spirit as well as of the body. And principle six of nonviolence states that nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. As Dr. King once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. This, by the way, was a paraphrase of the 19th century abolitionist and Unitarian minister Theodore Parker, who said, 
I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divin it by conscience, and from what I see I am sure that it bends towards justice. Like Dr. King, Theodore Parker, and everyone who works for peace and justice, we stand on the shoulders of millions of men and women who came before us. Know your nonviolent history. It might change your life. This lovely music that we're listening to is called Chanterelle by the band Crowfoot on their album As the Crow Flies. You can find this album at www.crowfoot.org. And if you like that, you may also enjoy the new band of Jade Strudel and Adam Brom. It's called Mavish, M-A-I-V-I-S-H. And you can find their music at www.mavish.com. And we are back talking with Paul Chappelle. We had just left off on the a very engaging and interesting question of what do we who believe in nonviolence do when someone comes up and asks us, well, what about ISIS? Yeah, so to address that and something else that comes up a lot is people say, what do you do about serial killers and murderers? We have to have laws. You, you can't convince everybody of anything. There's still people who don't think slavery is wrong. There's still people in America who don't think women should have the right to vote. That's why you have to have laws. So if, let's say I told you that I had a slave and it were true, I'd get arrested and I'd be on the, I'd be on national news for having a slave. And if you try, if somebody goes to a polling booth and tries to prevent a woman from voting, that's illegal today. Or things like child molestation, right? There weren't laws against that in many parts of the ancient world. So we have to have laws. We have to have law enforcement. And as long as there's alcohol in the world, I'm not at all arguing in favor of prohibition, but there are many people where alcohol will increase their aggression and make them more likely to commit violent crime. I have a friend who's a prosecutor, and he tells me that almost all of the cases he sees of domestic abuse, there's either alcohol or drugs involved. So we have to have laws, but nonviolence is a way to resist unjust laws, to overturn unjust laws, and to bring into existence just laws. So I think that that it being illegal to prevent a woman from voting, it being illegal to have a slave, those are just laws that I fully support. So we have to have laws because when you have 7 billion plus people on the planet, you're always going to have some people who fall through the cracks and commit murder, child molestation, fraud. Uh, rape, um, assault. Now, ISIS is, a, is another question. ISIS, it's a much longer discussion, but ISIS, we have to consider that ISIS is actually the symptom of a much deeper problem, which is the growth of extremism in the world. And it's not just extremism in the Middle East. We see it in our own country. If you look at the rise of white nationalist groups in Europe and the U.S., you see that rising. And you see extremism growing because we have this crisis now in spirituality and in what it means to be a human in the 21st century. So I think that ISIS is actually a symptom of a much deeper problem. I can talk about how we could deal with that, but 
ISIS by itself is really not the root cause of it. It's really just the symptom of a much deeper thing that we have to tackle. And nonviolence is the only way to tackle this much deeper problem. It's creating things like ISIS. And the much deeper problem is the extremism? So it's basically, I, I gave a talk in Uganda and I asked the audience, I said, what do we need as humans? And people, I, I asked this in a lot of talks, what do we need as humans? People typically say food, water, shelter, safety. They typically list material things because they're basing it off of Maslow and Maslow's hierarchy. And then I always ask the audience, I say, well, what about purpose and meaning? Is purpose and meaning a basic human drive? And in Uganda, I asked this question. I said, what is more important, purpose and meaning or food? And every single person said purpose and meaning. And these are people who had lived through the Civil War. And this one woman, she stood up. She said, purpose and meaning is more important. She said, because if you have a lot of food, but you have no purpose and meaning, you won't want to eat. You won't want to live. And so if you have a lot of food, but you have no purpose and meaning, you'll have no will to live. If you have a lot of purpose and meaning, but no food, you'll work really hard to find some food. And people might say, well, purpose and meaning isn't as important as food, because if you completely deprive humanity of all food, humanity will go extinct. But if you completely deprive humanity of all purpose and meaning, won't humanity also go extinct? Again, we're the only species on the planet where we can have food, safety, shelter, good health, freedom, and we will commit suicide. Now we have other needs belonging. What's more important, belonging or food? Think about what's more important to a wolf pack, belonging or food. Belonging is the precondition that allows wolves to obtain food. If wolves don't have belonging in a pack, they can't get food or protection. So belonging is the precondition for that. If you put a five-year-old child in the wilderness by themselves, they're going to die. They need a community to survive. Self-worth belonging, purpose, meaning. Human beings crave transcendence, transcending our sense of time where we feel like lost in the moment, like time disappears. Now, these are really powerful human drives. And when you understand these drives, you better understand ISIS. So think about nationalism. Nationalism gives people purpose and meaning. It gives people belonging through a sense of national superiority. It gives them self-worth also through a sense of national superiority. It gives them transcendence through identifying with a flag or some sort of image that transcends their limited existence. And think about ISIS. Think about you are, you are an alienated Muslim living in France, living in Britain, living in the U.S., and people look down on you, and they think that you're, you're scum. And then ISIS tells you, no, you're not scum. You are important. You matter. And here's a way to be part of this very important mission to protect this part of the world from what they consider foreign aggression. And this is a very worthy cause, and you can belong to this group. So these are really powerful drives. This is what draws people to the Aryan nation and to white nationalist groups. You're craving purpose, meaning, belonging, self-worth, transcendence. And so... Our society does not do a good job of feeding those cravings to people, right? In our society, the predominant philosophy is make a lot of money. And you define your self-worth and your purpose and meaning through making money. But that doesn't work for a lot of people. And what if you can't make a lot of money for some reason? 
and then you have this spiritual void within you. This allows nationalism and white nationalist groups and, 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 and ISIS to really tap into that for people. And so both political parties, the Democrats and Republicans, they see humans in these very materialistic terms. Same thing with communism. This view that if, if humans have enough money and they have all their food, everyone's going to be happy. We're going to have world peace. But that's not how humans work. Look at Hollywood. I mean, look at the people in Hollywood have money. They have fame. But you have problems like drug addiction, alcoholism. Sometimes people commit suicide. They suffer from depression. So I think that we really have to rethink what does it mean to be human? What do humans need? And food and safety is not enough. It's like what Jesus says in the Bible, man does not live by bread alone. And I think that we have to have a culture that gives people healthy ways to attain purpose, meaning, self-worth, and belonging. And I think a culture of nonviolence is a very powerful way to offer that to people. I think that it's really important to touch on that piece about this void that exists within society that prohibits people or provides obstacles for people to be able to connect with some type of purpose and meaning and some kind of deeper awareness of who they are, where they belong, what they're connected to in relation to one another and to the world around them, because I think that that's really at the heart of all of the problems that we're facing right now. We're thinking about these ideas of success that are tied to an economic system. And we're going to be talking about that on a future show. So we don't have to go down that rabbit hole too deeply, but we're, you know, we're talking about these models for success that are based on all of these artificial and illusory factors that don't really get to the heart of what we need as human beings, that they don't really get to the humanity that is crying within us for expression because all of the things that we're seeing out there are divisive. We see these forms of extremism, as you said, in these supremacist groups in the U.S. We've seen a lot more high-profile racial violence that's erupted here than we've seen in probably 40 years, 50 years. We have seen a lot more overt forms of racism. We've certainly experienced that uh, against indigenous people here in this country, and I know that it's also happening in other parts of the world. And so coming on the heels of Martin Luther King Day, one of the things, one of the quotes that I really like that inspires me when it seems like the shadows are lurking too too large is the quote where he says that, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. And really, that's what it comes down to. What greater purpose and meaning can we have than to love one another? Wow, that's really beautifully said. Absolutely. Greater, like you said, greater, what greater purpose meaning than empathy and love and serving justice? And how do we give people outlets to find purpose and meaning and self-worth in these different areas? And our society just doesn't promote this. It doesn't promote this as an avenue. For purpose, meaning, belonging, self-worth, you kind of have to go out of out of the out of your way, out of the ordinary to find it, because our society's primary driver is, is economic status, and a lot of people just feel very empty and unfulfilled. And even people who achieve that 
often feel very empty and unfulfilled. Paul, I have a question about your new book. The title of it is The Cosmic Ocean. What does that refer to? So it's a metaphor for the universe. The reality we live in is the cosmic ocean, and we're all you know, part of this interconnected mystery. And when I was, something I mentioned in the book after the cosmic ocean is how I've always heard this phrase about starship Earth, you were like, you know, the Earth is like a starship. And I always found that kind of, that metaphor kind of disempowering because we don't control where the Earth goes. The Earth just goes around the sun like it's supposed to, and we're just along for the ride. But there's another way to use that metaphor, and it's the idea that the Earth is a ship, not sailing through space, not just sailing through space, but sailing through time. So think of time as kind of like the sea that we're sailing through. And when you think about the Earth sailing through time, humans control where this ship is going to go. We control whether this ship is going to go towards annihilation, our biosphere being destroyed, or whether we can get our act together and protect our very fragile, delicate biosphere and uh, protect our environment. And the thing about sailing on the sea of time is you can't go backwards, right? It's a very ruthless sea. If you make a wrong turn, if you have a nuclear war, if you destroy the biosphere, there's no going backward. And so that metaphor lends a lot of power to how much responsibility we have as humans, that we are on this planet and we determine the fate of this world. We are so much technological power that it is up to humanity to either protect our biosphere or we can drive almost all the life on this planet into extinction. And we have to guide this planet very responsibly. And nonviolence is the only way to really steer this planet towards a very safe course into the horizon of our fragile future. And so the metaphor lends itself to many different kinds of, of ideas, but one I really think is important is just recognizing that, that time is a ruthless sea and we as humans have to make the right decisions. The entire planet is depending upon us to do the right thing and not to destroy this very delicate uh, biosphere that we call our home. You also talk about the intersection of peace between our internal and external universes. When you look at that larger universal picture and the metaphor um, of the universe, it's really important for people to understand the correlation between the two because that's where everything comes together. It's not that we're never going to get angry. It's not that we're never going to engage in conflict. It's just that we have to make sure that there's a presence, as you say in your book, of love, justice, understanding, truth, and other ingredients that serve life and community that can overlay those things so that we can work with them effectively and humanely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's something that you talk a lot about is the importance of the spiritual component for Mm -hmm. the broader peace component and how the two are interconnected. And we got to get rid of this whole thing now. We got to get rid of all the pretense. And I mean, we're human. We have bad days most of the while. We get angry sometimes. It happens. But what can we learn from that? How can we um, help each other through that? Doesn't mean you're not going to get angry. I mean, there's bad things happening in the world. People are, and animals are just being slaughtered, killed. People are being mistreated. Our right, animals, the environment's being mistreated. It's going to make us angry. But how do we have a community 
where out of that anger, we can develop more empathy, more understanding, and not descend into the the downward spiral of, of bitterness and depression and cynicism. That's a really wonderful and important question for us all. And the part of what I like about the, the work that you do and the speaking that you do is that you use your own experience, as you said earlier in the show, as not just a tool for yourself for learning and changing, but also for the compost of the fertile ground of change in others. And you're very willing to share your personal story and your personal journey as a way to open up conversations of change in your listeners and the people that you're interacting with. Now, one thing that we didn't talk a lot about on this show is strategy, which I know is a a bone that you, I, and Sherry all like to pick. We love strategy. We're kind of junkies of it. In the last few minutes of the show, perhaps we could talk a little bit about why love and spirituality and compassion and empathy, all these things we've been talking about, why are they so strategic for nonviolent movements? And why is nonviolence the only way out of the crisis that we're in? So the reason strategy is so important is strategy is very simple. Strategy is about how do you maximize the impact and the effectiveness of your action. So we have a finite amount of time on this planet. We have a finite amount of resources, finite amount of energy to act. How do we maximize how effective our actions are? And acting strategically is trying to maximize our effectiveness. And this whole metaphor where we're, the Earth is sailing through the sea of time, is, is there's a lot of urgency on this issue. The, the issues we're dealing with now, they have a time limit, right? The world wasn't going to end if women didn't get the right to vote or if slavery wasn't abolished or if segregation didn't go away. Those were not issues that threaten human survival. But the issues we're dealing with now, environmental destruction, nuclear weapons, war, and the biggest cause of environmental destruction being animal agriculture, if we do not act with enough urgency, with enough effectiveness, we might be too late. And so because of that time limit, we really have to think strategically. And nonviolence, it gives you the deepest understanding, going back to know your enemy. Empathy gives you the deepest insight and understanding into another human being. And it gives you the greatest source of knowledge of how do you persuade these people? How do you effectively combat their, their, their false beliefs or their misunderstandings? And the reason why nonviolence is the only way to deal with this is it is the only way to get down to the root causes of our problems. And the army in 2009 did a sustainability report where the army listed several threats to the U S national security and the U S army listed climate change, severe income disparity and poverty is these national security threat. It sounds just like the Occupy movement. And I tell people when the U.S. Army and Occupy movement agree upon something, we should pay attention. But there is no way to violently solve the problem of climate change. There is no way to violently solve the problem of extreme income disparity. There is no way to violently solve the problem of poverty. And so nonviolence, waging peace, is the only way to get down to the root causes of our problems, which is how people think. All problems come from how people think. And all progress comes from changing how people think. If you don't change how people think about slavery, racism, sexism, you can't really get to the root of what's causing these problems. And so nonviolence is the only way to transform people's ways of thinking in a positive direction. I think that's really true, and history has proven that to us, where we see 
areas where there have been laws that have prohibited certain behaviors that have become taboo within the society, uh, where they were no longer acceptable by the majority of people, such as the abolition of slavery, that the underlying thinking, the underlying embedded belief related to entitlement to own and to possess and to control another human being, that that way of thinking wasn't shifted automatically for the entire population and that we still see issues of racial violence that are emerging. We still see issues of racial violence against groups that have been subject to genocide because those underlying beliefs and those ways of thinking have not been changed. So I think that this is really at the crux of the work that the three of us all do. It's really about touching the hearts and minds of people to help them to see those things, to give them the space to be able to create that movement. And also um, to remember, remember their humanity I want to just jump in there really quick and remind our listeners when we're talking about the abolition of slavery that slavery was not a phenomenon that only existed within the United States and of the many, many nations that practice slavery, uh, many of them found ways to non-violently abolish it, Great Britain being the, the prime example that comes to mind, whereas the United States fought a bloody civil war that many people uh, argue was not actually at all about slavery, um, at least especially not at its in- inception. And so just when we're talking about the abolition of slavery, to remember that one of the, the primary drivers of the global abolition of slavery was not the use of violence in the in civil wars, but rather this change in perception and per- and change in economics as well, the use of nonviolent tactics such as boycotts and refusals to buy goods and produce that were produced through slavery. That's a great point. And we still have illegal slavery. There's estimated 27 million illegal slaves, but that's less than 1% of the world population. It's still a huge problem we have to confront. But if you look at ancient Rome in the first century BC, a third of the population were slaves. Ancient Greece, fifth century BC, around a third of the population were slaves. And the other thing to keep in mind is that slavery, we think about slavery as you're not paying people. That's not what slavery really is. Slavery basically means you have a right to kill somebody. So I can kill you or I can rape you and suffer no legal punishment. I don't have to claim self-defense. I don't have to accuse you of committing a crime. I can just kill you with no, no, no penalty. So slavery wasn't just about owning people and it wasn't just about not paying people. It was also about you have a right to rape and kill these people. You don't have to claim self-defense. You don't have to accuse them of committing a crime. You just have a right to kill them. So I think that there's still illegal slavery, but attitudes have changed dramatically. We have a long way to go to abolishing illegal slavery. But again, if I told you I had a slave and I, it was true, neither of you would be my friend anymore. And I'd probably go to jail. I'd probably be on national television as having a slave. And we have more progress to make on all these issues, but we have made progress. To give an example of that, some progress we have made. I mean, when I was a kid in elementary school, Columbus was his big hero. And now people see Columbus much differently today than they did when I was in the, growing up in the 1980s. So we have a long way to go, but, but attitudes are changing, and, and we're part of this process. And maybe 20, 30 years from now, the change will be even more dramatic if we keep pushing forward. It's also very important to all of us that are doing this work to look back and to see how far we've come. 
because the issues can seem so overwhelming at times that we can't see our way out of them. But if we look back, we can see that we have overcome incredible obstacles in the past and that we've traveled an incredible distance. Powerful. Absolutely. I want to remind our listeners that we are talking with Paul Chappelle, who is a veteran of the military and the peace movement alike. He is the author of the Road to Peace series, a seven-book series that has just released the fifth volume, The Cosmic Ocean. He's also the Peace Leadership Director for the Nuclear Age Age Peace Foundation. And uh, you can find out more about him at www.peacefulrevolution.com. And just as we're wrapping up the last minute of our show or so, Paul, I just remember something that Sherry said to me about the Penobscot words for warrior and that there's many meanings for that word, none of which involve killing other people. And that comes to mind very strongly as a excellent metaphor for you in the work that you do now, that you are a very nonviolent and peaceful warrior, someone who's been on a long journey of understanding what this role is in our society and how to best wage peace and to work for justice. And so are there any last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners before we end the show? Oh, just that both of you give me a lot of hope, really. The work you both do is so inspiring to me. And, and I'm just really grateful to know both of you. And this is a team effort. And if we don't get more people involved, humanity isn't going to survive. But, but among all the sources of hope I have in terms of how far humanity has come, like Sherry's saying, all the obstacles we've overcome, um, both of you doing the work you do really inspired me. So I'm just very grateful to know both of you. Well, thank you, Paul Chappelle, my friend and colleague and my inspiration to a lot of the work that I do. You've also inspired both of us and you inspire countless other people with the transformation that you've gone through in your life. You show us all what's possible. Thank you so much for joining us today on Love and Revolution Radio. Thank you for having me. It's my, my honor. Thank you. Thanks this week to our guest, Paul Chappelle, and to my co-host, Rivera Sons. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, Words and Music by Diane Patterson, and performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find more of her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. You can follow Sherry Mitchell on her Sacred Instructions Facebook page for all of her wisdom and insights. Love and Revolution is a weekly radio program, and your local station can broadcast it, so ask them. You can reach us at the Love and Revolution page on my website, that's www.riverasun.com, and we are Love and Revolution Radio on Potomatic, Stitcher, and iTunes. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Sherry Mitchell. Paul Chappelle offers us a unique lens through which to view war, peace, and conflict. And whether you're a peace warrior or a warrior for peace, Maybe you'll be reflecting on the ways you can work powerfully and strategically for peace and justice by the time we talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.